This episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast is sponsored by Mr. B, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. Check out their products in your local grocery store or online at mrb.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. And before we get to this week's interview, we've got a special guest. If you're a Mountaineer Media fan, you know who he is, Joe Justice. And Ray and Clark, his two boys, are also with us here on the podcast. What (laughs) is up, guys? We're getting the thumbs up right now. What's going on, everybody? Hey, guys, this is Joe Justice. Clark and Ray, guys, say hi to everybody. Hi! What's up, fellas? We're here to talk about our latest adventure at Ace Adventure Resort. We went for a uh, little bit of a bike ride and a hike. Hey, guys, tell them about the cabin. Oh, the cabin was great. There was an air conditioner, but it was broken. That's true. It was was pretty warm. It was a warm weekend in the air. Pretty hot then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it it was all right. It's still still early early, springtime, so it it wasn't too bad. Good deal. Like up there, there's these mattresses. They're very thin. They're only this big. Yeah, you guys got to sleep in the loft area, right? Yeah, they're actually this big, actually. Very small. They're pretty thin. Well, there's like this big light, and I figured out how to turn it on. I was going to that that they knew how to look for light switches. I don't know how to turn the light. Nobody else They are experts <laughs> learning light switches, for sure. That doesn't surprise me one bit, knowing you, Joe. You are pretty tech-savvy when it comes to anything. Uh, electronics, electricity, that <laughs> never doesn't surprise me. Joe, have, have Ray and Clark always been uh, kind of like your, your your two compadres? Have they always been by your side? They're well-spoken. Have, have they always been like the your two go guys or your, your the guys that always kind of hang around with you? Yeah, they've always been my buddy. I take them, I take them everywhere. I told when 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 they were first born, I told my wife. Uh oh, there's there's pumpkin the cat crossing the screen trying to get some airtime. Yeah. <laughs> the cat's not gonna be able to jump up without them giggling themselves to death. So sorry about that. <laughs> hey, I love it. <laughs> So when the boys were first, when Clark was first born, I warned Heather. I told her, you know, be ready because as soon as they're old enough for me to take them out, we're going to be gone all weekend and we're never coming back. And at first she said, well, that'll be great. That'll be alone time. But I think she's to get a little jealous of our adventures nowadays. I think she's wanting to start to join us a little bit yeah, more. She hasn't been much. Ever since we started, she's never been there. She's like, she's like in the side, like, Boys you know, she doesn't like to be on camera, does she? Your mom does not like to be on camera. You guys are the face of <laughs> the boys only club. It's a boys club. Well, Joe, you went. So, you know, folks know if you're listening about your media, you've heard us talk about Joe Justice's blogs, his videos. Uh, he showcases the brands that we partner with. Mr. B Chips are frequent at the lunches that they're enjoying out in the parks. But you went to Ace Adventure and tell us a little bit about that. It was a, a deal where essentially do you do trail cleanup or what all exactly is the arrangement down there? And you do have a new video coming out very soon. So if you're listening to this podcast, you'll go over to mountaineermedia.org and you'll probably catch the video by the time this comes out. Yeah, so that was the funny thing for this one. It's supposed to be the trail maintenance weekend. We did it last year. We're going to do it again this year. So basically, 
you get to stay in one of their cozy cabins for free, but you have to work on the trail maintenance, which is a lot of fun anyways. So, but there was a snafu this year and they called me Friday when we were just about to leave. And for some reason there was some wires got crossed or whatever. And the guide wasn't going to be able to make it on, on Saturday. So they had to cancel the event, but they just gave, since it was so late, they just gave us the cabin for free. So we just stayed there over the weekend okay. and just went hiking and, and bike riding instead. Gotcha. There you go. So you got, the, cool. you got the trip without the work. It worked out. You know what's right. funny though? Joe, one of our, you you for sure remember this, but like our viewers probably don't. But funny enough, since we're talking about trail cleanup, our first online interaction, one of our very first online interactions was actually you guys cleaning up the Canal Boulevard. Do you guys, yeah. Clark, Rain Clark, do you guys remember that? That was like one of the very first videos that you guys did. Yeah, okay, guys, cleaned up the. Let Rain talk. Did you see the popcorn video where eyes got big? <laughs> We've seen them all. He's talking, he's talking about the videos where we cleaned up the road, where we went down by the river. Do you remember that? And we picked up the trash. Yeah, you, you guys were helping Charleston. You were cleaning up Charleston. What a, what a commendable act. We picked up large pieces of a desk. Yeah, somebody had thrown a desk over the riverbank, and we actually picked up the... The wow. desk, the whole desk, and carried it to the dumpster. There's for anybody who's not from Charleston. There is some, there is some strange stuff gets thrown on the ball. It <laughs> doesn't surprise me. It yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. Exactly, does not surprise us. So, Joe, let me ask you this: as a father and as a West Virginian, you know, we've talked to some people, and you know, they kind of, I think, fall into the trap of, oh, there's nothing to do in West Virginia. You seemingly don't subscribe to that philosophy because you're out and about. You find these cool fairs, different parks. What's your message? Is it to just don't be afraid? Is it to be a tourist in your own town? Is it just check out things that maybe you're you're blowing off and maybe you're you're not thinking they're going to be cool, but they actually are cool? Like, what would be your message to the folks that are that have young families that live in West Virginia that are looking for something to do? Like, where, where do they start with, if, if I guess is the question? Well, it's funny because I'm just as guilty of this as everybody else is. When this week was last week and we were at the Ace Resort, while we were there, we were out at the Concho Overlook and uh, another family came by and I asked the guy where he was from. And he was from upstate New York. And the first thing out of my mouth, uh, it, you know, even though I try to be conscious of it, the first thing I said is, what are you doing here? Yeah. But it's like, I mean, we've got all kinds of great stuff. People come from all over down in the um, the Hatfield McCoy area, the, uh, the, uh, the tourism stuff, something like 12, 13%. And these aren't people coming from uh, coming from Kentucky. These are people coming from California and Arizona, yep. and just from all over the United States to come into our little bitty state of West Virginia because we've got stuff that nobody else has. Believe it or not, I mean we don't have Broadway, right. but you know if you want to get out and enjoy the woods, I mean a lot of people we just take it for granted because we live in it. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff to do. Well, this is a question for Rain Clark. Of all of the adventures that you've been on, do you have one that's been your favorite? The first one. Which one's the first the one? The one where we cleaned up the trash and everything. You like cleaning up the river? The that was cool. You like that? What about yeah. you, Ray? The popcorn video. The, the popcorn video. <laughs> he said oh, yeah. the popcorn video, but other than that one, well, what what did you what adventure did we go on that you enjoyed? 
for anybody who's wondering, <laughs> the popcorn <laughs> that he's talking about didn't have anything to do with Mountaineer Media. We made a video for selling popcorn for Cub Scouts. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. And he really enjoyed making that video. We had a lot of fun. We made it in South Charleston. Okay. But other than that, what about our adventures? What about when we went to the park and went fishing? Remember when we gone fishing? We went snow tubing? I know you really like going snow tubing. I know. What is it? Going up to the big hill. Going up to the big hill and sliding down on the snow tube? That was good. That was fun. There you go. Joe, I'll even ask you the question of all of the places. Is there been has there been one adventure that you've enjoyed more than others or just one that sticks out? I've got my favorite place to go has got to be Summersville Lake because there's that, always stuff to do. Assuming that was a cool video. Party, yeah, that was cool. And I've still got so it, and it, we had a big thunderstorm that day that wasn't in the video. But I broke a couple poles on my tent that I still haven't gotten fixed yet. I'm, I'm working on getting that taken care of. So we'll be ready again, you know, probably next month to head up to Summersville. But Summersville, definitely my favorite. I need a bigger boat, though. You know, there we go. The, the problem, the only problem is I've, I've owned a boat before, and there's no better day from buying a boat than, than getting rid of a boat. Than selling the boat. <laughs> yeah. The maintenance on them are such a pain in the neck. But I wish it, I wish I had a good excuse to get another to, one to get, well, yeah. well if anybody's listening and you have a boat and you want to sell it hey look we might have a buyer yeah. <laughs> we might have yeah. a buyer in joe justice joe um, we are always before we go we are always amazed with your drone work too i don't know if you've been letting incredible. the boys fly or if you're teaching the boys how to fly that thing too but they've got a good mentor in front of them because you know how to whip that thing around like it's nobody's business it, i mean it's incredibly professional looking work man it's awesome thank you very much ray i've been teaching ray how to fly it clark's not as interested tell him ray do you like flying the drone <laughs> okay the drone is always a must yeah well the, the best thing about the coolest thing about the drones is they've gotten so advanced now you know you can look really professional without having too much skill so <laughs> fair enough autopilot yeah autopilot comes in handy um, well, folks listening, look, go to mountaineermedia.org, scroll down to Joe Justice's profile. So if you go to our blog section, you can look at the bloggers, you can click his profile, and then you can date back all the way into last year. We're talking Mountain Lake, uh, Gritch Farm, Ritter Park, 2021 recap, Coonskin Park. They've been all over the state, uh, State Fair. They explore it, videos, blogs, pictures, recommendations, uh, even a little bit of directions, what to expect when you get there all West Virginia adventures, taking you on that true West Virginia experience. So Joe Justice, Ray Clark, thank you for what you guys do on uh, for on behalf of Mountaineer Media and taking our listeners and readers through everything. Uh, and we're, we're so pumped to have you guys on board. Hey, we are just having fun, right guys? And hey, if anybody's got any recommendations of places to go, we, we've got one of our offices is in the Eastern Panhandle and I promise you, I'm planning to do some Eastern Panhandle trips too, because I know those guys need some love too. Good to know. Good to know. Guys, thank you so much for jumping on with us. That was a lot of fun. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode as always we had a lot of fun there shout out to joe ray and clark maybe some of the most exciting they they brought a lot of energy to that interview cooper i really enjoyed 
<laughs> they absolutely not. They are the stars of Joe's video. No yeah. offense to Joe, but Ray and Clark are the stars of those videos. And so Ray and was, Clark delivered 100. Yeah, percent They did. They did. They loved their pumpkin, their cat <laughs> pumpkin. That was a big thing. But uh, no. So we wanted to get them on there. Obviously, their Ace Adventure video is dropping here soon. It probably is already out by the time that you're listening to this episode. So make sure to check that out at mountaineermedia.org or any of our social pages. You'll be able to find it there as well. But let's get to today's guest because this is a very exciting guest that we had. Brent Bailey. Dr. Brent Bailey, but we don't call him Dr. Bailey. He mixes that real quick. You'll understand when we get to the episode. But Cooper, quick thoughts on on Brent, because this was an episode maybe we didn't quite know where it was going to go at the beginning, but when it was all said and done, we were just blown away by how knowledgeable this guy was and how great of a conversation that we had. Absolutely. I mean, you can call Brent Bailey, Dr. Brent Bailey, a renaissance guy because he's a type of guy that can just talk about damn near anything, but in the best way where you're hooked, you're fascinated, you're interested. He does it from a almost like a professor kind of educational way, but also a deeply practitioner way because he's like, he's just very understanding. Yeah, conversational. All of those things, he's exactly uh, what you would hope the executive director of the West Virginia Land Trust would be like. So in this episode, you'll learn about what the work specifically in great detail, what they do, the nuances of it. Uh, we, we touch in all of that, like the development. Well, we got some wildlife. We learned about a new wildlife, DJ. And I don't, I think I agree. I don't think I've ever seen that animal or the even fisher. heard of that animal. I've never even heard of the fisher. If you have heard of the fisher and you're listening to this, Make sure to reach out to us, and if you have any Fisher video, pictures, anything of that sort, we would love to see it, because so far, the only thing that we've seen of a Fisher is a Wikipedia image, but fascinating stuff. We talk about migration of birds, but right out of the gate, he just understands his role with the West Virginia Land Trust and the Land Trust's role in the future of West Virginia. And he just makes it very clear how important the work that they are doing is for the future of conservation and tourism, outdoor recreation in the state of West Virginia. So uh, you're going to love this episode. We we even like uh, had like this uh, quick little side chat during the episode. It was like, okay, we're going to keep going. Like usually we cap these, I don't know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. We were like, we're just going to keep going with this one because it was so enthralling and so interesting. Uh, That's a little side nugget, little insider trading there. But this was a lot of fun. Cooper, final thoughts on Sprint. No, just everyone stick around. Towards the end of it, we get into his international work. Brent, uh, he spent some time in West Africa, in Latin America. We touch on that. He relates it back to West Virginia. Uh, we, we really do get into a wide range of uh, discussions. And it's really a conversation that needs to be had as West Virginia continues to grow and expand and try to uh, merge into this newfound uh, attention that we have as a state, as an outdoor economic haven. Uh, folks like Brent and the work that he does are exactly the people that we should be thinking about talking about and hopefully understanding and learning from them Uh, so i thought it was a phenomenal interview like you said cj uh let's just kick it to it let's get started right now and hopefully you enjoy dr brent bailey the sun does not always shine West Virginia, but the people always do. All 
All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Dr. Brent Bailey with us today of the West Virginia Land Trust. Dr. Bailey, we were actually just talking off camera a, a little bit about what the Land Trust is. Hopefully you can kind of explain that in some detail for us here. But one of the key things that you had just discussed is that uh, the land trust is big into conservation and, and you kind of joked like, okay, some people think conservation, oh, that's cute. That's nice. Save the animals. But it's not so much that it's a nice thing. You say it's an essential piece to what the land trust does and for the future of the state of West Virginia too, right? It's very essential how important con conservation is and in, in the land trust in general. Yeah, CJ, that's right. And the first thing I need to say is that it's Brent. It's not Dr. Bailey, because I'm not doing anything <laughs> that relates to my PhD. Well, I'm, it's related to my PhD, but it's not part of my main role. So uh, we, Brent we it is. First so that's, well, that's nice. You just have a, an extra PhD floating around. You don't even use it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do use it, but it's, it's, um, it's in indirect ways. It's kind of, gotcha. uh, it, it, it helped me think, it helped me figure out how to think about data and sure. technical stuff and understand science better. And I use it in a lot of ways, but I'm not in an academic environment. So, okay. Yeah. Good to know. Well, good to know, well, but continue pick up yeah, from sir, sure. where you were. So um, the West Virginia Land Trust is a statewide conservation organization and land trusts exist nationwide, but there are not very many in West Virginia. We're a little bit behind on the conservation scene in the state compared to what other states have. Land trusts are private nonprofit organizations that protect land. Mm. And so we are statewide. Many land trusts are focused on one watershed, one creek, one mountain ridge or something like that. Um, but we work all over the state. And when we protect land, we try to evaluate any parcel of land before we set it aside or purchase it or receive it as a donation, we evaluate it for its conservation values. And we ask ourselves, what does it offer to the community or to the state? And while I do think, as you said, many people think, oh, it's great to protect the birds. Oh, I, we need a place for salamanders and box turtles. All of that is true. But as West Virginia looks to develop its outdoor economy, and as we turn away from a single commodity dependence on fossil fuels to try to diversify what we're doing, and as we look to attract a workforce that can work remotely but wants to live in a nice place, the way that your community appears and the amenities that it offers become critical to your success. There's a huge movement right now in people leaving their homes and looking for great places to live. Mm -hmm. And we are competing with a really long list of other communities that are looking to bring people to their states. And certainly to offset some of the decline in the state's population, we need to be doing that. One of the best ways to do it is to create preserves, to create public green spaces, to put in trails, to give people a place where they can hike, mountain bike, get access to a river, enjoy the outdoors, because that's one of the things that is most attractive about West Virginia and is one of the policies and, and the investments that the state is making that is real key to trying to shore up our economy and to build on that. We're, we're really building on our natural assets. Sure. Conservation is, is done by federal agencies and by state agencies and by county parks and recreation commissions, but it is also done by nonprofit conservation organizations like the West Virginia Land Trust. And land trusts, I think, at a time when many public agencies are strapped for revenue, land trusts, which rely on individual contributions as well as grant funding, um, 
play a key role in continuing momentum to set land aside and good land that maybe public agencies haven't prioritized as much. You know, we're able to look at um, parcels that will be important for one community, and then maybe that community can attract more people to come there. But we're not in the state park business. Uh, we're not in the national forest business. We are looking for the way that parcels of, you know, as small as 50 acres in some cases will provide people a great place to go, a place to get away, uh, a place that can provide them with physical and mental health benefits, a place where the forest can protect drinking water because that forest may be upstream of a drinking water treatment plant for a community, a place that's gonna sequester carbon as climate change descends on us and our temperatures continue to rise and our storms become more severe. Forested properties can buffer many of those effects. There's a whole lot of benefits that come from simply protecting land and the West Virginia Land Trust is doing it all over the state with a pretty small staff. Wow. Cooper, I'm not sure that we've had a guest that can just hit the nail on the head like Brent did yeah. right there with every sentence. I mean, you are spot on with- oh, well, thank you. Well, but it is, it's true. You were spot on with the direction that we are going. So let's not, you know, get it twisted. Let's not think that West Virginia is, is the, the, the only place that's going through this metamorphosis into the 21st century. It is a, it's a great place to live and to be, but it's not the only place. So we do have to be attractive for outside people, not just for tourism or remote work, but in all aspects, you have to, you have to sand all the edges, not just one and hope people kind of make their way here. Yeah. Does Brent does um, does the interest in West Virginia becoming an outdoor economic haven, right? The East Coast, Colorado, the the tourism mecca that we think could drive economic development, provide jobs, and grow this area. Does that you know present obviously some challenges and opportunities? But in general, is it good thing because it, at least it brings it into conversation about this type of stuff like like is this push even though it, maybe there's been more pressure than ever for development and we have to make sure we're doing it the proper way but because of the because of now it's in the conversation does that make your work uh at least it's in the conversation until it's, it's top of mind for more people more organization more businesses more communities do you find that this recent maybe three the last like five to seven years worth of push to kind of make west virginia more focus or you know capitalize on our outdoor uh economic development how's that been for your your work is that you know good bad is it been a lot is it been overwhelming has it been you know what in general i guess has that done for you yeah i think i could double the size of our staff and still have more to do um our main limitation at this point as a nonprofit organization is funding to hire more people we get requests uh every week from people who say can you help me conserve my land and our ability to respond to those requests is somewhat limited because we're a staff of eight people working statewide. We're gonna be expanding some this year, but, but we are dependent, as I mentioned before, as a nonprofit, we're dependent on charitable contributions largely to do much of our work. So we are, um, we are so busy, nobody ever anticipated that we would be as busy as we are. And a couple of years ago, we closed on uh, 14 different transactions in one year, which is really a lot. Any particular transaction may take a year and a half or two years to finally uh, make, to finally complete. And uh, we closed on 14 projects. And now we have a backlog of about 20 preserves around the state 
that we'd like to develop for public access. And it's this is low-key public access. This is non-motorized activities. It's small-scale parking lots and trails that can accommodate hikers, in some cases mountain bikers, or put in a boat ramp to get into a river for kayaks and canoes. Um, it's not heavy-duty construction and development, but it is a certain amount of that. And our backlog of 20 preserves is a big challenge to us because we need to be probably looking at grant funding for community development because these are new amenities for communities that can create these opportunities. But you know, when you're looking for $50,000 to build a parking lot, that's not something that comes at you easily over a month or two of, of small scale contributions. You really need to get into the grant writing game. And right. many of those grants that are available come from the federal government. So we're upping our game in terms of how we create the necessary capacity to really access federal funds. And that brings with it a whole big set of new procurement requirements and putting out bids and getting three bids according to federal guidelines and paying according to certain pay scales that the federal government mandates. So it's a we're in an expansion mode right now, and it's really exciting. It's a little bit exhausting for our existing team uh, yeah. because we... We, we're in some ways, we're seeing the results of our success and it creates more need. Um, but, but when we have opened up the preserves, like we opened up a preserve south of Morgantown called Tom's Run Preserve uh, in March of 2020, just as lockdowns were beginning to occur with COVID. We had so many people who found that place and found it was the place they needed to go. And um, we went from just sort of a, a real small scale little uh, unknown place to a place on weekends that was packed. And people wow. were saying, this is just the kind of place I need. Thank you. Now, Morgantown has a lot of places to go, the Morgantown area. You can go to Cooper's Rock. You've got the mm -hmm. West Virginia Botanic Garden. We've got 40 miles of rail trails. I mean, there is a lot to do here, but there's an appetite for more. And what we hear from the uh, uh, CVB uh, the Convention and Visitors Bureaus that are around the state, they say that when people call them and say, I'm coming to town for a meeting, coming to town for a conference, coming to town for a reunion, or thinking about moving there, the next question they say is, where can I go for a hike? Right. Trails are probably the most demanded uh, community feature that people are looking for when they're thinking of coming to West Virginia for the short term or the long term. And we have a lot of opportunity here to put those in place. It's just that we need to make a concerted effort because if you try to build them over a long time, just with volunteers and, you know, Boy Scouts and university students, it takes you a very long time to make, make much progress. If you're able to hire a trail building firm that can go out and knock out a great trail in two weeks, you're way ahead of the game. It's right. just more expensive. You got yeah. professionals doing it then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it reminds me because like, I mean, places like, like Otter Creek, like, like Cranberry Glades. And of course, like Dolly Sods, like those now Dolly Sods has become, you know, a life. I mean, it's really, really grown the last during COVID era, but, but I, I'm, a, I'm an avid backpacker, like those parts of West Virginia and those types of like backcountry, more subtle, like you said, it's basically just like a parking lot and decently maintained like trails with the, the goal of being not, you know, extremely intrusive of the environment and try to just truly appreciate it. Um, those are, you know, really the, the best gems of, of outdoor experiences because it's not, it's not a big, you know, it's not an amusement park. It's not a giant state park. It's not extremely disruptive, but it's like direct access to nature. Um, so I could see where one that'd be appealing, but two, developing that 
costs money. And I have a guy, let me, I'll connect with you after the podcast named Paul Yandor, who I would call him, I don't know if he would call himself an expert grant writer um, or federal grant, like understanding the federal government grant system, but in a little town called Wardensville, West Virginia. And I've been dying to get him on the podcast. Uh, He's built like this sustainable, like farm for these like education centers and really has transformed this little pocket town called Wardensville, West Virginia. But he was an ex like White House staffer in the Clinton era, but he really, really knows how to do federal grants. And he's secured hundreds of thousands of dollars for that area. So maybe I'll connect with uh, connect you to after this. What's his name? Paul Yandora. Uh-huh. Is he connected to the Lost River Trading Post? Yeah, he runs that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 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 Great space. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he's built that in this little farm in that little area. And it, it's it's a kind of exactly what we would hope to happen in West Virginia because he saw, you know, it was a sleepy little pass-through town that wasn't much going on, uh, but he's built really a whole ecosystem of sustainable farming and uh, just like teaching kids um, just how to literally how to plant food and grow food and all kinds of really cool stuff. But he's done it through understanding the federal grant system. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really been a, a really cool thing to watch unfold. That's great. You know, I think, um, Cooper, when you talk about the, the places like uh, like Dolly Sods, like uh, Cranberry Glades, uh, you can add in now New River Gorge National Park. I think that our biggest risk at this point is that there is such an appetite for these kinds of places that we could be loving them to death. Right. Uh, I mean, there are places, you know, in the summertime, if you try to get to uh, the Red Creek Campground, uh, Dolly Sods, or you try to just, you go on that long, long gravel road down through there, there's a traffic jam. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knew that, you know, right. at, the, <laughs> at one of the highest points in Tucker County, there's going to be um, a need for, for crowd control. And um, New River Gorge, since it became a national park, I think visitation has increased something like 30%. And they haven't yet been able to expand their parking by 30% or mm-hmm. expand the hotel rooms by 30%. I mean, there's a whole lot of catch up with infrastructure that they need to do. And uh, what we're, one of the things that we're doing um, in Summers County is we're in the process of acquiring about 400 acres um, that, is, that touches National Park Service land and that ultimately will put trails across it will connect to the network of trails that ultimately go up to the New River Gorge National Park too. There's a great network of trails that can be built and connected between properties like the land trust, like state, uh, uh, the state park and the Little Bluestone National Scenic River that's run by the National Park Service, and then eventually connecting to the New River Gorge National Park. And that whole mosaic of protected lands, if you develop them so that they hang together and connect, can just blow open wide up big blow wide open lots of opportunities for people who can access these places from many different points yeah. and so you disperse them a little bit that's and you can approach from any number of directions and so that's, very that's one of the things that 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 our little bluestone preserve will will happen will make happen um, once it's complete uh, with acquisitions probably midpoint of this year. CJ, we've got big news here at Mountaineer Media. Mr. B Chips has agreed to stay on board and remain our presenting sponsor for all of 2022. That's easily the best news of 2022 so far. I'm a little biased, I get it, but 
no, this is huge news for us. And Marianne Kettleson is the CEO of Mr. B Potato Chip, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. So Marianne, thank you for believing in us. We certainly believe in what you and Mr. B is doing as a whole. And Cooper, Marianne, just like one of the coolest people out there, right? We've spoken with her on a handful of occasions. She's ultra supportive, but she's just like this down to earth, chill person, the queen bee, as we like to say. He's an absolute rock star, guys. Check him out, MrB.com. Find them in your local grocery store. We're so, so uh, proud and supportive of Mr. B because they believe in us and they believe in West Virginia. Cooper, there are a couple of things in life that you really just like can't mess up. You really have to nail it on the head, like buying a car, buying a home, buying an engagement ring, something that you and producer Mason Jack just went through. And both of you guys just bought your rings from one of the most trusted jewelry stores in all of West Virginia, and they are now a proud sponsor of Mountaineer Media, Calvin Royals Jewelry. And Cooper, that was a great decision that you made going to them to buy that ring, wasn't it? It absolutely was. It was a little stressful, but I tell you what, once I walked into the doors at Calvin Royals, I went to their South Charleston location, and look, they made it so easy. I was not put under any pressure. I was informed. It was fun. It was uplifting. It was all about creating the best experience for me buying it, but also with my fiance in mind. They listened to me, and I ended up getting a great piece of jewelry, and I think you can too. Anybody listening can go to South Charleston, Taze Valley, or Beckley. Go in there and see Calvin Royals. Mention Mountaineer Media, and I'm sure they're going to get a little smile across their face because they're investing right back in West Virginia. They even have something called the Heart in West Virginia collection and money that comes from that goes towards a scholarship for West Virginia students. So they believe in West Virginia, just like we do. Calvin Royals Jewelers, proud partner of Mountaineer Media. Yeah, you can check them out online. They also have stores in Beckley, Taze Valley, and like Cooper said, South Charleston. So check them out online, check them out in stores. But Calvin Broyles Jewelry, proud sponsor of Mountaineer Media. You talk about uh, having a traffic jam in one of the highest points of Tucker County. For places like that, uh, smaller trail systems that are much older than, you know, the New River Gorge National Park, where it's getting federal funding. My point is, what is what's the future of those places look like? Is it just expanding the gravel road a little bit? You know, like how do you kind of eliminate some some of those issues? And you'd use that phrase, loving it to death. How do you try and prevent that by, I don't know, is, is it possible to even do that? What are the future plans of places like that from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's hard to, um, I mean, you can do a little bit of retrofitting to expand some parking. and But I think that what you really need to do is to add on additional lands. You mm-hmm. need to expand the amount of land that's there. You, you also, I think in some cases, it depends on the lay of the land, but I think you can develop new access points. And I think that that's something that uh, a lot of our public lands are going to need to be considering. Is, this, is there a way to um, remove some of the pressure on the existing infrastructure that's there by multiplying the infrastructure, but in other locations? Um, and then, and I guess that that is part of our uh, angle too is when we're evaluating a property, we we always you know examine maps to see if the property in question is connected to any other protected land or public land, and is it going to serve a purpose to be a new uh, entry point so that there's there's ingress and egress in a different way so that you can spread the people out and spread out their impacts. Um, you know, mountain bikes and and hikers and and folks do have an impact on the 
uh, on the trails that exist and, and you need to try to disperse some of that as much as you can. I also how much, go ahead, CJ, you go how much of, obviously we've talked about the tourism aspect more, but maybe you can even get into the conservation side. How often do you plan these things out and say, okay, these are areas that we'd like to protect. We can incorporate some outdoor recreation to those areas, but we're actually doing this more or less to protect and preserve these portions of land. So they, um, you know, are not harmed for the future. Yeah. I'm sorry. That looked like my internet just blacked out for a second. That's okay. Did you, did you catch any of what I said or I didn't didn't catch it all? Say it again. No, what I was going, obviously we've talked more about the tourism aspect, but maybe you can even get into the conservation side a little bit more. When do you, if ever, plan and say, okay, we're actually preserving this because we want to keep this aspect of the land safe from harm or from future harm, or, you know, maybe you can even get, explain more of the, like the conservation side of your work in terms of trying to prevent things from disappearing or, you know, being eliminated from the wildlife, if that makes sense. Well, um, I mean, a a lot of what, what has been interesting is that I don't think that we ever anticipated that there would be such a demand for what we do. When, when we started expanding our staff, I think that we thought that we would have to be knocking on doors to ask people if they wanted to protect their land or, or would they consider selling or something like that. We get phone calls from people who say, my kids are grown and gone. I love this family property. I don't want it to ever be developed. Can I put you in my will? Or can I give it to you now? Um, I'm not going to use it like I used to, and I'd love to see it preserved. Wow. Or, um, so, so, or sometimes properties show up suddenly uh, in a letter from an attorney who says this property was left to you in a will. So um, the, we, we, are, we are so in reactive mode because of the requests that we get. We have a backlog right now, probably of 20 properties that we're working on around the state. And so we have become a little bit more selective in terms of what we protect. We're not just looking for any property. We want property that serves a purpose. So um, we will look at you know, the drinking water component or the adjacency to other protected lands or whether a community whether the nearby community has places even to go at all. You know, there are some counties that really don't have any kind of a preserve or a place to hike or walk. They might have a park that will have, you know, um, tennis courts or a soccer field or some sort of uh, developed recreational complex or even ATV trails in some cases. But in terms of a, um, a quiet natural area with just uh, low impact trails, that doesn't exist in many counties around the state. And so when we can work in a new geography and create an opportunity that wasn't there before, we look to do that. We don't target properties to say, oh my gosh, we have to go and try to get this because it's going to be developed. But we do hear from landowners who say, I want you to protect this because it's going to be developed. Right. You know, we, so we're not, we're not seeking to say, where can we stymie development? We have to have housing. We have to have good roads where there's a lot that we need that's, that goes hand in hand with the conservation work that we're doing. There is a certain amount of development development that you need. But if you can't make sure that the water that people drink locally is good quality, or if you're, they're worried about contamination, or people open the newspaper and say, you've got a boil water advisory now because there's been a contamination in your drinking water treatment. Well, 
that really doesn't do us do anybody any good. And, and we need to be looking for ways that natural forests can exist above those drinking water intakes. So they filter the water, reduce mm -hmm. sedimentation, and that chemical plants are not placed alongside the river banks like they were in the Freedom Chemical Spill in 2014 on the Elk River. And 300,000 people are out of drinking water for three weeks. You know, I mean, it's, it's like you, you just have to look at your natural assets and figure on planning. And the last place you should be putting some industrial installation is right above a drinking water system for a few yeah. That I mean, that, that's utterly no brainer. You know, that's utterly ridiculous. Three hundred thousand people that are questioning whether or not their water is drinkable. <laughs> so, well, actually, yeah. I mean, I I mean, I'm from the Oak River. I grew up in Mink Shoals area, of Charleston. So that literally is like that plant specifically is less than two miles from my house, my parents' house in Charleston. Um, yeah, whoever put that, who would thought like, let's put that above where we treat our water. I mean, that's got to be one of the <laughs> one of the worst decisions. Um, yeah. But maybe talk to me because that. Obviously, in retrospect, I mean, even that should be in current time, that should be, you know, a very obvious threat to th that, that type of work. What are and can you identify any non-obvious threats to conservation and preservation? Is there anything that's like subtle that like the public knows? It's like, like you said, like you're not, you guys aren't like chaining yourself to a tree before Freeze, something gets put in. Like you're not like the green keep, you know, those kind of like guys like activists and that, right? But is there any like non-obvious threats that's like, well, that's actually a low key, a big deal if this goes through or something like that. Does anything like that come to mind with your work? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and this is, this is one that, that at, at the local level can be controversial, but even though, even though, you know, we worry about water quality in terms of chemical spills and we worry about water quality in terms of acid mine drainage and legacy impacts that come from industrial activities, the biggest contaminant in West Virginia's waters is fecal coliform. So it's poop. And whether that's from houses that are straight piping their sewage into bodies of water, or whether it's cattle in the streams, which is very common in uh, our agricultural areas, you know, I think that a lot of people feel like cattle's, cattle and creeks go together. Well, that's one of the greatest uh, impairments to our streams that exists in the state. And so that, you know, looking at what are agricultural practices that remove cattle from streams so that they can get their water in troughs or through some other mechanism, is would probably make a really significant impact uh, in some areas. And when we're going to protect an area, you know, sometimes sometimes we don't acquire land. We will um, a, a landowner like a farmer will donate the development rights to on their farm to us, and that's called a conservation easement. So in the same way that you can sever your mineral rights from your property and sell them to somebody else, you can sever the development rights on your property and give them or sell them to a land trust. And so when we say, yes, we will take those development rights to your property, we will hold them. So your property always remains agricultural. It's always going to be a family farm. They continue to own it. They can sell it. They can will it to somebody else. But all future owners are bound by the restrictions of this conservation easement. Hmm. So we hold that. And one of the conditions before we agree with someone to protect their land is that they're going to have to protect their water. And if that means that cattle, which have been uh, going into the creeks are there, we don't accommodate that. And we need to make a plan with them for that, uh, for fencing to occur and alternative water sources to be put in. And if they don't agree to that, well, then, you know, that's their prior, that's their priority and that's fine. But that probably is a project that we wouldn't take on. 
Well, yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about. I would have never really guessed that like cattle, you know, like, you know, going to the bathroom in the crease is like an actual sustainable problem. But I guess with if you have large scale farming, you could see where that would, you know, severely disrupt the water system. That makes perfect sense. Maybe you can even go ahead. Continue. Well, one other thing that I think happens is that I think that people take for granted the places that they've always gone. And they have often sort of a sense of entitlement if they've and and, and it's understandable. It's, It's not a it's not something that, you know, is, is illogical. If they've grown up going to a piece of property where they're hunting ginseng or they're hunting wild game uh, or they're just hiking or they're camping or whatever, often they don't necessarily pay much attention to the ownership of that property, especially if it's large scale coal property or timber property, some company that is headquartered far away and um, they've just had access. So, and in many cases, historically, those companies have allowed local people to get access to those properties and use them. Well, then the property sells and people are suddenly caught off guard because they think, but, but, but that's a place I've always wanted to go. That's right. my place. Well, it isn't their place. This is private property and it's been sold and the new landowner may boot them off. And then people find that they're high and dry in terms of place to go. So I think that that's the, one of the other things is that people will call us and they'll say, well, you know, I, I used, I, I need a place to go because we used to go over here and now we can't anymore because they won't let us. Well, if you don't protect it legally and set it aside legally, then somebody else and some new owner can always change and take it. <laughs> yeah. and you lose your access. Yeah. So I think that I think there has always been assumed access. Oh my gosh, West Virginia is 80% forested. There is so much land out there. There's lots of places for people to go. Well, right. not if it's industrial, if it's an industrial landowner who decides they don't want to allow public access. And, and those companies are exposed in terms of liability in some cases if they do allow public access. And so, you know, a new owner, especially one from out of state, may say, Mm-mm, we are not going to let hunters go on this property. And then people lose the place they've always gone. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you could see where that would lead to like a feeling like, like not even just like the physical land conservation, that sort of thing. But I've often spoke about, you know, I'm obviously pro West Virginia being developed. I'm pro economic policy. I'm pro like using our outdoors to improve the lives of West Virginians and hopefully grow the state. Um, but you could see where if like if you can create this like hypothetical scenario that probably plays out as some faraway person, maybe a, a big institution, maybe just like a wealthy New Yorker buys a piece of land. And then now, like you just said, like West Virginians that have been going to the area for years, decades, centuries, or now don't have access to it. It, it kind of pits them against each other in ways. Uh, you could see where a lot of friction can arise. Oh, yeah. And in a lot of ways, both sides have, I think, just things because like, we don't want to become like, we don't want to overdevelop West Virginia and make it like a Disney world and like bastardize our culture and come here. And now we've got like 95 people going on like kayaks and they're all in a line going down the same Creek. Like that's not what we want. That's like overdevelopment. That's like, that's too much in one direction. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, like, you know, your granddaddy's favorite fishing hole might, if, like you said, if it gets bought or sold it, you know, you have to be, we can't cling on to things. Maybe we have to be able to adjust and grow with, with life and with development at the same time. So it's probably always a balancing act. Um, but at least I think having the the conversation is important um, and hopefully both sides of, of folks of those camps kind of can come to see the the positives in, in moving forward together, if that makes sense. You know, I think that for a long time, West Virginians have sort of assumed that um, land is going to be protected because the West Virginia state of West Virginia will create a new state park or the federal government will expand the New River Gorge or Harper's Ferry. Um, and it's always been sort of assumed that the government is going to do that. 
because that's been the kinds of protected areas that we've had, whether it's done by the state or the feds. Um, I think that for the land trust, you know, we are, we're a private organization. We're, we have to serve a public benefit because we are a, a tax exempt organization. A 501c3 is our classification. But I think that West Virginia hasn't had a lot of history of the understanding that private individuals can make a contribution to conservation. Private individuals can get involved. They can take, you know, they can join a, a, a maintenance committee that works on one of our preserves. They can volunteer to make it happen. They can donate funds in order to acquire places. They can lobby their county commissions to commit uh, COVID uh, relief funding to acquisition of properties. They can write to their state representatives and say, I think you should invest more in tourism for the state. They, there's a lot that private citizens can do through a vehicle like a private conservation organization like the West Virginia Land Trust. And that gives people a more ownership and a bigger stake in determining their access in the future to good lands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, I mean, we work, we love when we acquire a property, we love it when there's a local partner involved with us that we, who, who has their ear to the ground and who probably has, you know, been involved there longer than we have. They know the community better than we do. And so when we can figure out a way to manage our properties with a local organization that's really, you know, taking the lead, but doing it in the way that we have with the conservation values that we have chosen to protect there, it's really nice because it gives us gives us more solid footing as opposed to being an organization that came in from out of the community and said, well, we're going to set this up now and, right. and we'll let you know what you can do with it. We, we like having, you know, local organizations that can help us determine best use. PJ, when we see other West Virginia companies pouring their heart and soul into the Mountain State, it really does fire us up. And our sponsor, Building Appalachia, man, I tell you, they're doing exactly that. Go ahead and tell the listeners what exactly Building Appalachia does. Well, if you're looking to buy or sell a home in Kanawha, Putnam, or Cabell counties, definitely reach out to Building Appalachia, buildingappalachia.com. Jordan Christ and Jacob Skinner, we had them on the podcast. They're genuine guys, and they just want to make this part of West Virginia better. They want to connect people with their perfect home, or they want to renovate a home and connect it with somebody that it might be their perfect home, the next family that moves in there. So find these guys online, buildingappalachia.com. And if you're looking to buy or sell a home in Kanawha, Putnam, or Cabell counties, these are the guys that you need to get connected with. Kind of going back to the water discussion, tell us a little bit about the clean water collaborations, in particular, the West Virginia Land Trust teaming up with local breweries to raise awareness about the role of clean water in brewing West Virginia beer. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And then going back to the how important clean water is, you know, to, yeah, yeah. to what you guys well, do. You know, so the tagline is clean water makes great beer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, that is so understandable. That's just a few words and people get it when they hear it. And, Damn, and that is good. That is good. That, that for us has just been just really key. You know, we, 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 we knew that already the nature lovers love what we do. And, and a lot of us have, have backgrounds or friends who come from the tree hugging community. And <laughs> that's all great. But we felt like there are a lot of opportunities to get beyond that sort of inner circle of uh, nature lovers and just bring in people who can think, well, you know what, that is really important to me. And, and, and uh, breweries are the breweries are the springboard too much, that much broader awareness. I think uh, we have found that the local breweries are really uh, 
eager to emphasize the importance of clean water. They get it immediately. A lot of their clientele are people who enjoy the outdoors and who want to spend more time on rivers or hiking or whatever. So it's just been, it's been a pretty easy sell with our partners in the, with the microbreweries. It's been an easy sell with the public too, that has allowed us to cast a wider net and make contacts with more people. You know, and one of the things we're always doing is we're just looking for, um, I, I feel like we are kind of a good news story and we like to get the good news out. And so mm-hmm. when people connect with us by, you know, signing up to get our newsletter, to get our mailings or whatever, and we're not, we're not dinging people every two weeks for a contribution or a donation. It's not like it's all about direct mail and seeking funding. What we're really looking to help do is build a uh, build momentum for conservation in the state by increasing public awareness about what the opportunities are. So going into the breweries and getting our name on a coaster or, or having, having them donate a portion of their proceeds on a certain day to uh, the land trust, or it, it's been a really nice way for us to broaden awareness. That, That makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and it's, it's, I mean, it's like, you know, every, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, Sometimes when we think about these big issues, individuals think, well, what can I do? I'm just Cooper Summerman. I just grew up in Charleston. What, you know, what can I see? I just like, what can we individually do? But then I think, wait a second, like when I go backpacking, making my coffee from fresh West Virginia stream water in, you know, in the Montegalia National Forest is one, some of the, the most like like refreshing coldest crisp water i've ever like drank right at right out of the creek filtered a little bit through the filter but then yeah. drink it make my coffee with it that's a personal experience that's something that like i'm going backpacking in a couple of weeks like that's something i truly truly enjoy love to do and it provides such richness to my life well that's an example i've got a vested interest then in, of this community of this state of making sure that we have clean water so everybody can do that in different parts of the state yeah. so i i do think that like that connection with the beer thing, obviously a lot of folks like I'm a, I love IPAs. I love a good brewery, but you're right. That, that bridge kind of makes it say, Oh, see, like, look, that's an example of how this is not just like hoity toity, like, you know, save the earth. This is like, do you want to live a quality life? Do you enjoy the nice things? Well, these are the, the relationships that have to exist in balance for that to happen. So yeah. what a phenomenal campaign. That, that's, that's great. And if West Virginia breweries can grow in, in the state, I agree that that's a, a wonderful springboard to, you know, attract attention to it. Yeah. You know, I think that, that one of the things that we confront and, and anybody who's trying to, you know, I don't know, push the edges a little bit in their work. And this happens a lot in the nonprofit community um, is often uh, confronting the, a sense of resignation that many people in West Virginia have because they're accustomed to having dirty streams. They're accustomed to, pollution. They're accustomed to unemployment. They're accustomed to being last in line, not feeling like they are first in line for anybody in terms of opportunity. At the same time, they don't want a handout. They just want an opportunity. But I think that that sort of like, yeah, well, um, the river has been polluted my whole life. It'll never change. And I think there's a whole lot of that. And Mm -hmm. we really are working hard to say to people, you can change it. And you can look around the state and you can see examples. This is not just, you know, with the West Virginia Land Trust and our partners in Preston County at Friends of the Cheat have seen the quality of the Cheat River change in a lifetime. And it's been 25 to 30 years, but you can go places on the Cheat that you wouldn't have dared to two and a half decades ago. And that local nonprofit organization through its relentless advocacy for clean water and for recreational opportunity has made a huge change. And People can 
you know, get excited about this because it's a wonderful impact. The West Virginia Rivers Coalition has brought great awareness to other, to, to the needs of rivers all over the state, both for drinking water as well as for recreational opportunity. And they have been a really effective advocate with the state legislature to try to prevent really bad ideas from becoming law and to promote really good ideas into law. And I'm just filled with admiration for a lot of my colleagues with other organizations like Friends of the Cheat, like West Virginia Rivers, because they, we are all working together in different ways, but the ultimate goal is to make West Virginia a more livable state in many ways, and through recreation, through public health, through cleaner water, through, you know, all of these things. So I do, it's very admirable and, and it's good to hear that perspective because I do think that kind of what you'd said that that stereotype of the water's always been polluted. I mean, I, I do think even now people are hit with these headlines of PFAS, plastic, other chemicals, fecal matter. So if there is true change, then that's good because I do think people are timid to think about stuff like that when they hear these, you know, red flag words of like, well, the water's contaminated everywhere. There's, there's no change. There's no helping it, but clearly that's not the case. Although there are issues, it's definitely not the case that it's like too far gone to fix or correct or to improve the waterways. Yeah. Brent, I want to touch, just not to change gears too much, but I do want to touch on some of your international work because it's extremely fascinating. It looks like you just reading throughout your bio, you've been through Latin America, through West Africa. What are some of the experiences that, you know, of your career that you've really kind of stand out? And then do, do you think anything like that has impacted the way you approach work in West Virginia? Are there any similarities uh, abroad that maybe it's just more representative of just the human condition globally and that West Virginia is experiencing it, obviously locally a different, you know, the players change, but it's generally the same game. Is there any stuff that you learned and can think back on maybe that's helped your work now in West Virginia? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it. Um, yeah. I worked for, I worked for 20 years and on projects that were in, I don't know, 15 or 16 different countries, maybe, maybe a few more. Um, uh, and I was really, I really got into this work initially through an interest in migratory birds because the birds that are, there's a river of birds flowing north through West Virginia right now. It's this annual spring migration mm -hmm. as many birds that have wintered in the South, either in the Southern US or in Latin America, uh, Mexico, all the way down to- Which is insane. The, the true travel distance, the geography of these <laughs> birds traveling, it's insane. Even butterflies. I mean- Little birds, yeah. Right, right. It's just, it's, it's phenomenal. And West Virginia is in the heart of one of the migratory flyways. Mm -hmm. And at the time in, uh, in the late 80s, when I started with this, I, we were looking at what's the habitat fragmentation that has occurred on their wintering grounds, because some species were known to be declining. And it was, there was evidence that many of their habitats were being decimated due to deforestation, especially in South America. So we knew that that was happening. Interesting. But at the same time, there's a heck of a lot of habitat fragmentation going on in the United States. West Virginia is extremely forested, but you go to places where the birds used to nest in New England, and many of those communities have expanded so much that birds are the birds that are native to that area no longer have ad adequate habitat. You know, even at the local level, this plays out. It, uh, in, in Morgantown, we have the, the core 
the court arboretum at WVU. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the arboretum, but the arboretum at uh, when I first moved to Morgantown 30 years ago had species of birds that are no longer there because the size of the arboretum has shrunk as the university has expanded its parking for the Coliseum wow. and as Mon Boulevard has broadened. So um, wood thrushes are no longer in the arboretum. Wood thrushes are declining throughout their range, but they require more than 50 acres of woodland in order to successfully nest and raise their young. Well, this is, this is habitat fragmentation at the very local level. And the birds that I used to hear when I would go to the Arboretum 30 years ago, when I first moved to Morgantown, no longer are there. Same thing in my neighborhood. When we moved here, there were really large trees and large trees are uh, the ideal habitat for Baltimore Orioles. Orioles build this beautiful pendulous nest. They weave it and uh, it's often in willow trees or in, in trees with really a large branches up high in the canopy. And Orioles like this sort of mixed habitat that is large trees, but also open areas. And the development that has happened for building houses in my neighborhood in Morgantown has removed most of those really large trees. Well, the Baltimore Orioles don't nest here anymore. And so even just incrementally in tiny little examples, you can see where that's happening. And I became aware of that when I was looking at large scale deforestation that was eliminating habitat in Latin America. But we have also had over all of the Eastern seaboard, incredible expansion of habitat fragmentation as development has occurred. And that really limits the opportunities for nesting for many of those species. So I got into that through really through migratory birds, but um, you can't travel in many of these places without being affected by the uh, human condition and the challenges that people have for uh, clean water and educational opportunity, uh, looking for jobs, uh, looking for ways that they can, you know, protect their families and, and, and have a safe and productive life. Well, that's what everybody wants. And that's what my people in West Virginia want too. And so it's an easy line to draw from some of those uh, wishes that were expressed to me when I was working in some pretty remote places in Latin America and West Africa, but understanding that this is the human condition and everybody basically wants the same thing. And I was also confronted a couple times by people in other countries who would say, you know, you're working here, you're privileged, you come from the United States, you're white, and you're coming here and telling us how we should do our work. Don't you have needs back in your own country that you should be addressing? That really got under my skin and they were absolutely right. So I was often seeing these things, whether I was in Ghana or whether I was in Peru or Bolivia, and I was thinking, you know, people in West Virginia also are looking for these kinds of opportunities. They're looking for clean water and, and maybe I should be applying myself in my own home. Um, so, so, so it was, um, it was something that became clear to me that, that, you know, I mean, even if I was away, if I was away for three or four weeks and I did part of my PhD dissertation in Ghana, um, I was always thinking, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this is something that has similar dynamics back in the United States too. We don't think of that. We often think of developing countries as, you know, something far away, but rural communities in the United States have incredible needs and have some needs that are akin to those that we think of in developing countries because we don't have good access to the internet. I was in, I was in Bolivia one time and, um, you know, here in the United States, if you're in an office, um, you know, you, you've got computers and you have internet connectivity. And I was in this remote village in Bolivia and um, 
I went down the street and there was an there was a sign that you know uh, that 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 said it was a school or a, a training site, and I could hear this clickety clack, clickety clack, clickety clack. It was a typing school, and and people were using manual typewriters. And this was in the early '90s, and you know, at a time when we were all connecting with computers here, folks were still going in and learning how to type on a manual typewriter, and and that technological advance had simply not happened. Um, and and I, I thought, wow, okay, so yeah, we are way ahead in many ways, but to what extent is that actually helping us to do more or do better or whatever? Um, but but I was I was really struck by that. And another time, I was in West Africa. I was in uh, I was in I was in Mali in West Africa, and I was uh, traveling. I'd, I'd had some time off, and I was traveling with some folks who were in the Peace Corps. We went to, into a village. This village had almost nothing, and yet these little kids wanted to lead us around the village. They wanted to be our tour guides, and so we said, "Yes, you can take us there." And he said, "But we have to stop because at six o'clock we get the news on the television from France." Wow. This, was in, this was in 19, this was, I think, in 1982. And I looked around, none of the little homes had electric lights. None of them had running water. I said, what do you mean you're watching the television at six o'clock? And he looked at me and he said, don't you know anything about solar power? <laughs> what? In 82? 82. Solar panels with connecting remote villages in West Africa to international newscasts coming from France. Mali is French speaking, so it was a translating thing. And I thought, okay, we've got some catching up to do back in West Virginia. Yeah. 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 Or just a a, a shift in mindset. Yeah. But even even like, like, like you, I think you like pointed out that there is merit to, you know, like the... The, like even just say like poverty right and then like if if you're in a bad economic financial situation if your family your community is struggling to meet basic needs it's kind of hard to convince them to say that oh i, I need you to care about the birds it's like man like excuse my french like fuck the birds like i need to eat like you know what i'm saying like so that that conversation like i think sometimes is where you know maybe folks that are completely passionate and justly so about things like conservation and things and like animals and stuff uh, throughout the environment. It's like, well, it's sometimes the, the base of the people that live there are struggling to meet their basic human needs as people and individuals. It's kind of hard to convince them to even like register these other things on top of it as stuff they should be concerned about. So the conversation has to include both of that, I think, to probably eventually win over everybody that, hey, we're thinking of that, we're addressing this, and this is why this makes sense. It's not just, oh, this is like a rosy world that we all want to live in, and this is why you should do it. It's addressing real practical you know, parts of their lives and, and hopefully improving their lives at the same time while keeping balance with, with the world that we live in. Yeah. No, I think that there is, um, there is a lot of despair and, and, and basic human needs that um, in many cases, uh, funders from other parts of the United States foundations don't understand the depths of that despair that exists in rural places in Appalachia. And it relates to the opioid crisis and it relates to so many other things that have happened. Um, and, and those basic human needs are uh, not things that we are addressing on, a, on an immediate basis. We are a long-term solution to make communities more livable, but it requires a whole bunch more. Just, I mean, to get over the food deserts, 
that exist in West Virginia right. where people can't get fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, there's just a basic, uh, you know, our food system is also broken. Our healthcare system is broken. Um, it, it takes many, many initiatives of many different kinds in order to pull all this together so that it hangs together and creates those, that sort of cohesive social safety net and uh, diversified opportunities um, and gets people out of that sense of despair and resignation that they have lived with for a long time and that lack of opportunity at the local level. Interesting. I want to know, are typewriters QWERTY? Do they use like Q-W-E-R or how do you like when they were learning to type, could could those skills translate over to a modern day computer? No, um, (laughs) Spanish Spanish language typewriters have them in a different order. Very true. That that's ignorant of me to have even CJ, when I'm cooking dinner, I, at this point in the evening, I've got little mental capacity left. So something that has really improved my life and made cooking dinner a breeze is using Raised Rub. Now, Raised Rub is a true all-purpose seasoning that's packed full of mouth-watering herbs and spices, 21 of them to be exact. Yeah, it's like a mouthful of flavor when that chicken, pork, or vegetables get in your mouth, when you take that first bite with raised rub sprinkled on top, or if you seasoned it beforehand, it's just like, boom, punches you right in the mouth. It's it's a delicious taste. You can get it on Raised Rub's website or amazon.com, and they just ship it right to your door, man. Brody Prudnick was a former guest. We had him on. He was awesome, and he oversees the Raised Rub operation based out of Morgantown, but uh, man, this is a West Virginia company to its core, and we are loving to be proud partners with Razor Up Cooper. Order Razor Up today. DJ, one of the things that you just gotta have in life is a J-O-B. And if you're in West Virginia, I think the best place you can go is Mountaineer Employment Solutions. Now they're a premier talent acquisition agency. So that means if you're a small business, they can help you get employees. Or if you're just looking for a job, Mountaineer Employment Solutions can help you do that. Hold on, Cooper. I'm writing that down. You said J-O-B. Oh, job. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not great at spelling. That took me a second to get there. But yeah, definitely. Mountaineer Employment Solutions is the way to go if you're looking for a job or for a company that, you know, if you need staffing for your company, definitely check those guys out. You can find them online. Beamountaineer.com. That's beamountaineer.com. Bill Carter found this company he's an awesome guy and he's going to hook you up he's going to he's genuine man he just wants to help people especially west virginia businesses so go check them out mountaineer employment solutions you can find them online at beamountaineer.com or find either of their locations in person in morgantown and in south charleston um brent are you familiar with the concept and we know we'll be respectful for your time that we've been going on just so fascinated with this conversation um the concept of rewilding have you ever heard that yeah like the whole like i, I think the the best or most like known example is I think the reintroduction of is the wolves into like the like Yellowstone or out west basically and then once they did that the de- literal downstream effects of then it changed like the vegetation which then changed the bees which then changed the rivers like is there any is anybody doing that or thinking about that sort of thing in West Virginia I know like the reintroduction of elk maybe is not like with an end game of trying to do something like that but is there any group or people that are, are thinking of those type of issues with, with respect to wildlife and the environment that you're yeah. aware of, at least? Yeah, not to my knowledge. I was going to say the elk example is probably as close as we come. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of folks who would like to uh, see native brook trout uh, more 
populace, which means you need to stop stocking trout that are not native to here. And that would certainly be controversial. But rewilding is very controversial. Rewilding, rewilding is a really radical, crazy idea that has a lot of merit in, you know, in, in some elements, except uh, it, it conflicts with human populations for the right. most part, because that kind of says, no, we're going to rewild over here. And we're not going to be playing the game that we that you're accustomed to. And that's that's really it's a fundamental challenge to a way of life in many cases. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, it's only happening in in sort of incremental or uh, small ways that, um, you know, we're still looking at trying to get populations of uh, species to bounce back. And whether it's brook trout or whether it's, you know, fishers, the 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 mammal, it's a really large weasel. It's native to our forests, but very uncommon. Um, you know, we've got, we've seen fishers on a couple of our preserves. We've got trail cams that are up and, and we're finding that those things do persist and they will bounce back if you give them habitat. But that's a far cry from the rewilding concept right. in, in its purest form that's been promoted starting yeah. most. Wait, wait, wait. Fishers are, okay. Tell me, tell us more about these fishers. I've, I have definitely never seen a fisher. They almost look like otters or something uh, i don't know like little ferrets or, uh. yeah i mean it's it's a it's it's a pretty um pretty effective predator and and they eat all manner of uh oh, yeah. mammals yeah. that are their size or smaller it's 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 in the weasel family it's a yeah. it's a, a mustelid um and they are uh think of it as like a i don't know sort of a mini wolverine I mean, it, it does yeah, look like that's that. Yeah, exactly what it, it looks, looks kinda, like. I don't yeah. know if I'd want to run into one of those. Things, no, you, you sort of don't, but you'd love to see one as long as it yeah. must be foot. You know, it, it would win if you had a conflict with it. Yeah. That's hilarious. But yeah, that's and it's just not known, you know, and um, they were they were extirpated from the United States or from the from West Virginia in, I think, in the early 1900s. And then they were reintroduced in the maybe in the 60s. And they have in the right habitat, they have made a slow recovery. And so now they're around and it's kind of exciting just to think that they're out there. Wait, I'm looking at the Wikipedia map. I don't even know if I can share my screen or not. Okay. So yeah, well, I'll show you this. I'm looking at this Wikipedia map and it's like the, you know, it's, it's habitat isn't, doesn't even include the Appalachians. So that is kind of incorrect. There are fishers that still live throughout West Virginia and, and kind of in this area. Yeah, I'd say that's old data. Yep. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, we need to write a letter here. So. <laughs> no, no, I, I only say that because <laughs> I think that's interesting that there are few, but it, it's almost you just assume that they're not. Or like the, the when you're looking for fishers, you don't start in West Virginia. You don't start yeah. in this area. Yeah. You don't. Well, I'm I'm curious what what the map has also for porcupines. Um, you know, porcupines are in Western Maryland, and it's likely that they do cross over into West Virginia. Uh, they're much more kind. It's it's a New England. It's it's largely northeastern species too, but um, but I believe that you're gonna that that there are gonna be some uh, that will expand their range to south to here. Yeah, I mean, like even like mountain lions. I don't know if like West Virginia has any. If we truly have any of those, I know we certainly have like bobcats, but I don't know if there's any yeah. true wild mountain lions still left in the mountain state. Lots of rumors. I don't know. Yeah. Well, look. 
Brent, this has been amazing. This is obviously, I'm, I'm super passionate. This has been really fascinating. We've been meaning to get someone on here who is of your caliber to speak about conservation force and that sort of thing. So look, I mean, I tell a lot of our guests and I'm humbled every time that you come on here and share share your story. Uh, one, you always, have, you always have a place with us to get out um, some information if you certainly want to. So continue to keep us in the loop of this type of work. Uh, but then two, I always like to thank our guests because uh, it is passionate West Virginians like yourself that are trying to make this state a literal better place to live and work. Um, and, you know, we need the, the state needs it. And it's an honor to share light and shine light on your story. Uh, you know, we certainly see John, if you have any other thoughts, but we certainly appreciate you coming on today and talking about it. Uh, maybe just a final wrap here of what is the long-term execution that you guys are trying to pull off and more information and ultimately like what is something that you were you know like the long con i guess what is the long-term mission and goal for you guys i, I think that with our our emphasis on providing public benefit we want everybody to find it easy to get outside near their homes in a safe way and just being able to do that is going to have positive impacts on communities all over the state. So to the extent that we can make that happen with in every county and in any community that is, you know, that is willing or looking to do that, we're in. And that's the long term. That's the long term commitment is we want to make West Virginia a better place for West Virginians. Yeah, we didn't even get into like the mental health awareness month aspect of all of this, but that is such a key factor in the work that you guys are doing. You know, maybe the best prescription for mental health is to get outside and see the green around you. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. no, no doubt about what you guys are doing is just phenomenal. Thank you, Brent. Much My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. Yeah. Good luck to you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you.